Santa Cruz and pass out some tracks. And before you know it, you get kind of surrounded by sort of a frenzied mob scenario. People take exemption to you sharing your faith. Who knows, they start to beat you. You get taken to the ground, hauled away in cuffs and placed in a prison cell tonight. And then if you can imagine this, let's just say you're awaiting the sentencing of a judge that has the authority to execute capital punishment. Now I know that's kind of hard to even think about, but you have to try to really get a good appreciation for what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And imagine your family, imagine your life, your relationship with your kids, your work, your community, your neighborhood, everything all turned upside down in a moment, sitting tonight in a prison, awaiting potentially execution. And that might help us to have an appreciation for where the Apostle Paul is coming from as he writes this letter to the Philippians on the subject of joy, as he is there in shackles in a Roman prison himself, awaiting the judgment of Caesar Nero. Not only does he write this letter on joy, it would seem that joy is sort of bursting out from him as he writes. But here's the good news, ready? The good news is, is in this little letter, I believe Paul is giving us the key, or the keys, if you will, to unlocking the joy that we have, that God has given access to in Christ. And as we're gonna see, I believe today, as we've seen so far, joy is not unlocked by pumping up our hearts emotionally, but on changing our minds mentally. Remember the word joy or rejoice in this book is some 19 times, and yet the word mind or think is in this book some 15 times. So it would seem that the two are interconnected, and I believe they very much are. That my perspective, the way that I look at my circumstances, no matter how difficult they may be, are what's going to enable me to either have my joy robbed from me or allow me to hang on to joy constantly. And joy is, for the Christian that is indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, that is born again, having placed their trust in Christ's sacrifice upon that cross for our sins and his subsequent resurrection, joy is a constant for us. It can be a constant for us. But there's some things we have to do in order to do that, and we've seen them along the way here in this book. Like in chapter one, the emphasis was on us trusting in God's sovereignty. And then last time as we began chapter two, imitating Jesus's humility as he did go to the cross, humbled himself. And then this morning we're gonna see the second half of chapter two that we need to be serving others sincerely. I think that people that are most miserable, or when we as people are most miserable, it is because we spend our time focused on ourselves and our needs and our wants and the things that aren't going well for us. If you want a surefire recipe for depression, just isolate yourself from everybody that you know, put yourself in a room somewhere, and focus nothing on yourself and no one else, and how you've been wronged legitimately, and how you've been hurt down throughout the years, and that is a way to kind of keep us in that continued 
rut. I've seen this in ministry illustrated in my own life. I certainly would never claim to be the model of joy by any stretch. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The idea is only as I imitate Christ. But because of God's call upon my life as a pastor, I'm thrust into a position all the time where joy comes into my life as a product of just how I operate within the confines of his calling. Because I'll have appointment after appointment after appointment some days where I have no choice but to get out of my own head, stop thinking about myself, and dive in with someone else and their deal or their prayers or their issues, empathize and sympathize with them, infuse the Lord Jesus or attempt to into that situation on behalf of them, and in the process of doing that, it brings me great joy until I go home and start thinking about myself. Oftentimes, I'm so distracted by ministry to others, I have no choice but to be filled with joy. But then when I get home and I start thinking about myself, I get into my comfortable clothes, I get on the couch, I start watching the ball game, and that's when I remember that my hip is bothering me from the night before. That's when I remember my financial situation. That's when I remember everything that would tend to bother me if I focused on it all the time. So I think a real important key for us in order to cling to that joy being a constant in our lives is our ministry to others. The Apostle Paul last time said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but he said, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I think it's a real key to joy. We saw it last time in the life of Jesus. He didn't go to the cross and endure the mocking and the shame and the beating and all that came with it for his sake. He did for our sake. And so if you want an example of others-centeredness, you can see it in the person of Jesus Christ. This week, the Apostle Paul puts three more people before us to consider. One, of course, is himself, but he spends more time focusing on Timothy and a man by the name of Epaphroditus. All three have the same thing in common that Jesus did and that Jesus has, which is an others-focused mentality, and it's a big key to bringing joy into our life. So let's take a look at the text, picking up where we left off last time in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. It says, therefore, and of course, this is a continuation of where we left off. The first 11 verses is what he's referring to when he says, therefore, in light of the humility of Jesus Christ, he's going to exhort us. How humble was Jesus? Well, he's eternal God. Right? He didn't consider it robbery when he thought about being equal with the Father. He didn't consider it something to cling to or grasp to. He came and he was born into this world. He didn't have to be born into the world. He could have just appeared. But he was born into the world. He was a baby in this world. He grew up as a child. He was a teenager who had to submit to his parents whom he created. I find that fascinating. You know, you think about if you or I had the power he had as a teenager, right? If my parents were to say, uh, you're not going out tonight there, Buster. I've been like, you don't think so? Freeze you right there, boom. I'll come back later on. I'll unfreeze you, but I'm going out tonight with my friends. Good thing I'm not Jesus Christ, of course. He submitted to his parents 
whom he created. I think a wonderful thing. Later on, he would work as a carpenter, not going into the ministry until he was 30. One of the things about a person once they're saved, because everybody who's saved has a call upon their life to do some kind of service for the Lord. Everybody does. But one of the things that happens sometimes when you're saved is they're eager to get out there and serve God, oftentimes in a capacity that God has called you to, but maybe there's a waiting period. There was even for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, for whatever reason. Not that he had to, but that was the timing determined by God, that he would wait until he was 30, sometimes in our own lives. We have to be patient waiting for God to do that in our own lives. And then, of course, he'd spend three and a half years in public ministry. You know, he would be rejected. He would learn all of these lessons that we have to learn in life. So in light of that humility, says my beloved, verse 12 again, as you have always obeyed, not in my, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, when we first read that, we think, oh, the pastor's going to give it to us this morning. You've got to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But notice the subtlety in how that's worded. It says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. You always got to read the Bible in context, and you always got to look for little clues and subtleties. Think about it. I mean, he's writing to believers, saints in Philippi. This is not an exhortation to unbelievers. It's an exhortation to believers. That's why he says, and the wording is important, work out, not work for. Nobody can work for their salvation. Salvation is a free gift. To suggest that anybody needed to work for their salvation would be to suggest that the work of the cross was somehow incomplete, and now we have to come along and add something to that. Then you have a works-based gospel, and a works-based gospel is no gospel at all, because the gospel is supposed to be good news, and it's not good news if you have to work for it, because you can't work for it. Your righteousness is filthy rags to a holy God. So praise God, it's not a works-based gospel. Here's the thing, we're saved because, get this, somebody esteemed you very highly. We might say at the time, he esteemed you more highly than himself, that is Jesus. Now the exhortation is, you and I, we work that out in our lives. In other words, work hard to show the result of Jesus changing your nature from the inside out, as we just sang, he does the work inside, and we work that out practically in our lives because of his focus on others. He went to the cross, now there's a change that takes place in me, and I'm to display evidence of that change. And he says there to do it, to work that out with fear and trembling. Not that oh, if I slip up, I'm not going to make it into heaven, or God's going to smite me or smoke me with lightning or something along those lines. But that the fear and trembling suggests an awe and a reverence that anything would come out of my life other than a practical outworking of the change that has already taken place inside of me. And that's what he's suggesting to us here, that we would do, that change inside of us fear and trembling, God, that I would display for all to see the work that you've done inside of me to be a testimony of who you are and what you've done for me, much less that I'd be willing to allow my pride to get in the way, to forget that I've been called to an other's 
centered type of life now to the point where I'd be willing to be a part of dividing or factions that would even church, uh, split a church or a ministry because I'm unwilling to submit to uh, an others-centered type of approach. And I think Paul, in so doing this, he is encouraging the people and I think it's sort of in a sanctified way, a sanctified sort of shaming that he's doing. We know that in chapter four, that there is, we're gonna see an issue that takes place between two women in the church there in Philippi. Now we don't know a whole lot about them. They seem to be women of prominence because he names them by name, assuming that people would know who they were. And there's some kind of an issue. We don't know how far reaching it is. We don't know how many people have impacted but there's an appreciation, I think, in the text that the Apostle Paul wants us to know that this can have a far-reaching effect. That sometimes an issue between two people can become an issue between two groups of people. And before you know it, there can be factions along those lines. I think we read the book of Philippians and we go, wow, it's such an encouraging book and it's so refreshing and it's full of joy and it is that. But it's also pretty heavy when you think about the fact that he is anticipating bringing this up in chapter four, and some of the subjects, we'll see some of them this morning, are pretty heavy in light of that, that in encouraging the unity in the church body, he is sort of by default calling out some of the sins within that church body, or you and I in a local church, where we can just get to a place where we're not willing to set aside our pride for the sake of God's work, for God's call, for God's movement, his spirit, here in this place because we won't put on others' centeredness, which we can do at any moment, it's a choice. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which is gonna look like placing the needs and preferences of others above our own. Now, how do we know? Because if you just read verse 12, it says work out your salvation, pastor. How do we know that I'm interpreting that verse correctly? And the answer is it's always context. I mean, you can look at the whole New Testament and see that that's not what he's saying. But even within this book, it's not what he's saying. Because if you did just read verse 12 and you stopped there and you didn't move on to verse 13, you might put your Bible down. You might go, well, I got to work out my salvation. You get into the spiritual gym, so to speak. You roll up your sleeves and you say, I'm going to go to work to work out my salvation. But if you just read verse 13, it says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So you're like, wow, I gotta work out my salvation. I hope I have it in me. I hope I can find a way to work out my salvation, but it's God who works in me, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He can and he will both give us the desire, that's the word will there in verse 13, and the power, that's the word do in verse 13, and that is to live an others-centered kind of life. Because God knows that that type of mentality does not begin in my flesh. That was not a part of my inherited nature that I would be able to focus on others above myself. It's got to come from him. And the good news is he promises to supply it for us, for you, and for me. Now, what's even better about that is, I mean, I know I can be up here sometimes. I'm animated. I'm excited. But that's because I'm excited about him. It is not my job, nor do I ever try to approach us this way, not consciously. It is not my job to motivate anybody at all. I can't. I don't know that I ever will 
along those lines motivate someone unto godliness or faithfulness or holiness or anything like that. And I don't have to because God's word here teaches us that it's him who does that, that he's producing that in his people. Now, I'm not saying we don't play a role. I'm not saying we don't cooperate. But he does the work in us and then we need to show the practical outworking of that in the way that we respond. And again, that's a testimony for people to see. And it would include, verse 14, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, I'd have no problem with that verse if I could just remove one word from that verse. How about you? Do all things, I'll give you a clue, do all things without complaining and disputing. I could do some things without complaining and disputing. I could do many things without complaining and disputing, but all things, that's a different issue altogether. It looks nothing like Christ, right? You ever get to the point in the gospel where Jesus just loses it and just starts complaining? I've had it with you guys. You damage the tent or whatever the case. We don't have hotel reservations. He never does that. He never complains at all. Why? Because complaining is self-centered and Jesus was exclusively others-centered all the time. We are complainers sometimes by nature. Best example might be the children of Israel, remember? After the exodus, they go out into the wilderness, two to three million of them. What are they doing? They're complaining. Despite the fact that they had been freed from their bondage there in Egypt, and as a result of that, Almost all of them did not get to enter into the promised land. Now, let me illustrate this for you because it's important. The promised land in the Bible is not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the victorious, abundant, spirit-filled Christian life. Okay? I don't have time to develop that today, but that's what it is. Now, what that tells me is, here are folks, you can be saved. They were delivered from Egypt, a picture of our sin and being in bondage but never enter into all that God has for us, his highest, a joy-filled Christian life because of complaining alone. Complaining can rob me of the very joy that God has for me, and I never enter into God's highest for my life. Complaining is also, as it was for the children of Israel, contagious. You got a room this size, and someone says something? I tell you, you ever been standing around somewhere in church or at a luncheon or whatever the case may be, and someone comes up to you and complains about the church or something along those lines, I know you wouldn't do it. I'm saying someone does that to you, right? And you hear this thing and it never occurred to you before. It's some analysis, some critique of the church that never would have occurred to you, but now that they told you, it's in your head now. And you start looking for it also. It's like, great, I have enough of a critical spirit on my own, thank you very much. I don't need any of your thoughts to get in my head. But that's exactly what can happen, and that's why complaining is definitely not other-centered. Because I think maybe that in sharing that somehow, they'll like absorb it for me or make me feel better by sharing that complaint. But often all it does is cause them to notice that same thing by which they can complain about also. So don't do those things, he says, verse 15, that you may become blameless, and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so 
yet another reason for us to maintain an attitude of humility and other-centeredness because we're told here that we shine as lights in the world. And you might say, well, you don't understand my circumstance. It's hard to shine, say, in Santa Cruz County. It's a dark place. Or at my work, there are no Christians there. Or even in my home sometimes. The fact is, the darker the environment, the brighter a bright light usually stands out. So by contrast... It enables us, it's not easy, I'm not trying to make it sound easy, but it definitely enables us to shine brightly for him. That the impact that we would have on people needs to be noticed. You agree with that, right? That's not something I'm just saying. But that the outworking of Christ's change in me needs to be felt by others. It was Hudson Taylor who said, hey, if your mom or your dad or your children or your spouse, your dog, is not happier for the fact that you're a Christian, then you might want to ask yourself whether you really are. No matter what the environment, no matter where you are, no matter how difficult it is, God enables us to shine brightly. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. It's an interesting phrase there, a sobering one at the end of verse 16, because the word vain there means empty. So Paul's saying, boy, I hope I don't labor emptily as it relates to you in Philippi. What he's saying is, in other words, hey, you need to listen to what I'm saying because I'm gonna stand before Christ someday and I'm going to be rewarded and he looked forward to that time of being rewarded for what he had done and specifically here in Philippi it would be one of the places where he would be rewarded for the work that he did and so when he stands before God he doesn't want his labor in that church to have been in vain all the years of work that he put into that place that he personally invested he was there and he found that church there in Philippi and yet there are two people fighting right? There are two people fighting, and oftentimes when we saw this, say, in other epistles like in 1 Corinthians, where a couple people start fighting before you know it, there are factions in the church, and I think, and this is the sobering part, what Paul is suggesting here is this situation could be dangerous enough that this could spread, and potentially it would render my work there in vain when I'm rewarded before the Lord someday. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy to consider that my pride or my lack of submission unto others-centeredness could have that kind of a far-reaching effect on even into eternity. Pretty sobering and a great encouragement for us to adopt this other-centered mentality of which Paul, here as we continue, puts up for us three examples of three men that displayed this really well. Verse 17 says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul here sort of refers to himself as like a drink offering. You know, back in that day, they would take a little bit of wine and they would pour it over an animal that had been sacrificed unto God. And Paul likens himself to that very drink offering. So he likens the church in Philippi to the animal. That's the big part of the sacrifice. When you give your life to God, and when you serve him, when you become a testimony for him, whatever the case may be, you're saying, Lord, my life is not mine anymore. 
you are Lord. That's the idea. Lord means ruler. If I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. So by making Jesus Christ Lord, I'm saying my life doesn't belong to me. I would have wasted it anyway. So my life now belongs to you, Lord, and here is my offering of my life as a result. Paul comes along and says, and what I am as a servant of God is just I'm pouring out myself, just a little bit of a drink offering on top of that, that he was overjoyed, rejoicing in the fact that he got to play a small part in their development as Christians. And that that would move him to live a life, a sacrificial kind of life, going through all the things that he had gone through. Now you think about that, and you think about Paul's perspective. Paul's perspective, I mean, he did more than just play a little part, didn't he? But he was happy to be a drink offering poured out for those folks. I think it's important that we have some kind of understanding that God is able to do the same thing in our lives. I mean, we may not know until we get to heaven just how God did use us along the way exactly, but it's neat. I mean, you could have been here a few weeks ago for VBS, one of the servants that was involved. Isn't it neat to be behind the scenes doing some kind of work for God? Maybe you're putting some crafts together or you're building some of the display and you see not only a bunch of kids come and people are blessed, but at the end of the week, you find out, wow, eight, Children gave their lives to Jesus Christ, and I got to play a small part in that. Lord, my life isn't mine. It belongs to you, and whatever you want to do with it, that's what I want you to do with it. Because there's nothing this side of heaven more rewarding than being able to contribute to God's work and watching people come to Christ. That was Paul's perspective. Let's take a look at Timothy's perspective. Verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. So Timothy was someone who sincerely cared for the people. He says everybody seeks their own, but by inference, not Timothy. That's quite some praise by inspiration of the Spirit that Timothy did not seek his own, meaning he did not seek what was in it for himself. He wasn't in it for how he would get something or notoriety or what would be praiseworthy or any kind of way in which he would be taken care of as a result of living this kind of way sacrificially. He was not in it for himself. Paul said, I could send people to you, but I have no one who's quite like that than Timothy. Now that's kind of sad to me in a way. Because even in the early church, even in Paul's day, it shows you the scarcity of ministers who were in it just to love God and to love God's people and not in it for their own, so to speak, as it says, quote unquote, not in it for what they could get out of that. But verse 22, you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And it's likely that someone like Timothy's grandmother led Timothy to the Lord. It could have been Paul, but definitely Paul was the one who ministered to him early on and developed him, discipled him. We need to be discipling, right? The Great Commission is not to make converts, but to make disciples. So we need to be about discipleship as a church body. That's what Paul did with Timothy, and they developed a great relationship where 
though Paul was not Timothy's natural father, he was his son in the faith, Timothy was, for the apostle Paul. And therefore, verse 23, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. One of the things that this tells me about a character like Timothy is Timothy is also very humble, very flexible for God, adaptable. He has no agenda. He's just like, Lord, whatever you would have me do. You remember, you know, Timothy, I think a lot of times we just think of him, we know he was kind of timid Timothy early on. That was sort of his nature. We think of him as a young man, right? Because Paul had said and wrote to him and said, hey, don't let them despise your youth. But by the time that he writes this, Timothy's like 40 years old or something like that, most likely. He's not some boy that Paul's dragging around on the mission field. In fact, more so, he's very prominent in the New Testament, one of the more prominent characters. He's Paul's guy. He says, look, there's no one like-minded, which means same uh, soul-minded is what it's like. We have the same emphasis, same focus. Timothy would be the one that Paul would send in to fix a situation at a church or address something at a church or even to plant a church. Timothy could have been like, Paul, you think you're gonna send me back to Philippi? No, I got my own church now. I got a big old congregation. I'm writing books, DVDs, the whole thing. He doesn't do that because he's flexible. He says, I need to go somewhere, send me. Lord, whoever, whenever, send me. There's such a freedom, folks. There's such a freedom in not limiting God Really? Have you ever tried it before? Because I think when we say, God, I want to be used by you, but here are the things that I don't want to be called to, okay? I just want to make sure you know about that. I'm not going to the mission field, and if I do, it's not Africa or wherever you don't want to go. And there's a freedom in saying, Lord, I trust that you know best for my life so that I can better hear from you. I'm not going to give you a list, God. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, there's a freedom in that. And for someone so, so prominent, as we would think, as Timothy, to say, Paul, where do you need me to go? Oh yeah, long, long ways to go get a report so you can be encouraged? Okay, I'll do that. So Paul could be encouraged in prison. Now here's another man who traveled a long, long ways to encourage Paul also. Epaphroditus, verse 25, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, that's quite a praise from Paul. To call anyone a fellow worker, I mean, who had his work ethic? Let alone a fellow soldier. I mean, I'll stand in the trenches with this guy. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now, Paul, we know, is in a Roman prison, and it was a part of that system that in order to have clean clothes and eat or whatever, that had to be provided for you by your friends and family who would come visit you. So this idea that we have today, you know, of clean clothes and your own bed and three square meals and, I don't know, Xbox or whatever they do in prison today, Wi-Fi, that wasn't a part of the Roman prison system back in that day for sure. In fact, there are parts of the world today where you can be in hospital and same rules apply. You can be in a hospital and they're treating you for your illness, but your family's got to bring you in food or you don't eat. Now, we're pretty blessed along those lines in America, right? 
You may not love hospital food, but at least in some hospitals, we get a menu. <laughs> you may only choose between green jello and orange jello, but at least you get a choice and you get fed along the way. So along those lines, here's a church and they're 700 miles away, something like that. And they have this burden to minister to Paul, so they send this gift. And that's part of why he's writing this letter, to thank them for that gift, which was probably some kind of a care package or something along those lines. And here's Epaphroditus. He steps up and volunteers to do this. And again, it's a long ways away. It's not like he could just get on a plane, obviously, or a car. To go 700 miles in that day would have meant probably a boat, and a horse, and walking, and several other things in order to get there, and he volunteers to do that. Not just that, it would seem that the intention on the part of the church in Philippi was to send Epaphroditus, and that he would stay with Paul, and be sort of a servant to him for some time there. But listen to what happens to Epaphroditus. Verse 26, since he was longing for you all, and was distressed, why? Because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death. So he gets sick somewhere along the way, either en route or while he's in Rome. And it's amazing that the word gets all the way back to Philippi. How did that even happen? I don't know, but word, the word travels, and that's a good reminder. Because it's not like he sent an email or picked up the phone and said, I'm sick unto death, but I'm going to go in and see the doctor today and they're going to give me some medicine. It's not like he could say that. And yet the word gets all the way back to Philippi. I mean, I think that that's pretty incredible. But notice his focus, because that's the real take home here. Notice Epaphroditus' focus. His focus is he's distressed. Why is he distressed? Because he's almost going to die? No. He's distressed because he had heard that they had heard that he was sick and sick almost unto death. That's what bothers him. Now, if I get on a plane next summer, let's say, and go down to Peru where our Peruvian missionaries are, and I get sick almost unto death, I will be distressed, but it's probably not going to be I love you, but it's probably not going to be because of you all. It's going to be because I'm feeling sorry for myself. And that's just the opposite of what an other-centered person is doing here. You believe that? He's almost dead, and he's like, wow, my concern here is how are the people going to feel when they find out that I'm sick? after they were the ones who sent me here. That's an awesome testimony of godliness there in action. But we're told God had mercy on him. Praise the Lord. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, it was bad enough that the Apostle Paul was falsely imprisoned. Bad enough that he would have to watch, potentially, Epaphroditus die. But for Epaphroditus to die while ministering to the Apostle Paul, so let's go back to that scenario. Let's say I'm in Peru with our missionaries, and this church body sends someone to Peru to minister to me in prison, and that person gets sick and dies out in the mission field. How am I going to feel? I mean, I would just rather have died myself than to have someone else and someone else's family be impacted by doing that along the way. Paul said, I don't want sorrow upon sorrow here. So therefore, he said, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. God, every indication in the text here, God healed 
Epaphroditus, and that he did it through some kind of God thing. There's no indication that Paul healed him. No indication at all. Or else why would he have had sorrow upon sorrow? Why have he had had sorrow at all? Paul had healed many people, but it doesn't look like God had used the Apostle Paul to heal Epaphroditus. Now let me make it clear. I'm one that I believe the scriptures teach very clearly that the gifts are in operation today, that the gifts, plural, of healing is in operation today. But because it is the gifts, plural, I don't believe anybody ever has, outside of the Lord Jesus, had the gifts of healing on demand, including the Apostle Paul. So he could, and he did heal people, but he, could he do it any time when he wanted outside of God, you know, giving him that burden to do it? I don't believe that he did, nor could anybody do that. If not, then he would have healed Epaphroditus and he would have healed himself from the thorn in the flesh that he had. But certain teachers today, and this is why you always got to test with the word of God what they teach, would have you believe that that's not the case. That the reason that we can't heal ourselves or we don't climb the corporate ladder is because we just don't have enough faith. Well, is that why Paul didn't cure Epaphroditus or himself? Now, I think that's a false doctrine and something that you have to pay attention to. Paul sends him back. Sooner than he would have sent him back. But there's a reason why he sent him back. And that we just read in verse 28, that they would be able to rejoice. Receive him therefore, verse 29, in the Lord with all gladness and, check this out, hold such men in esteem. So there's that word esteem again, right? Hold such men in esteem. Why, verse 30? Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So he responds to God's call upon his life. He travels all the way to Rome, to supply what was lacking in their ministry to the Apostle Paul, he almost dies in his service to Christ, not regarding his life. He's not looking out for himself. He's not prioritizing self. He's not self-seeking. He's not self-serving. He's not looking out for number one. He's not regarding his life. Well, Epaphroditus, <laughs> that's your problem right there. You should have been looking out for yourself. Some would say, some would criticize. And yet Paul says, hold such men in esteem for not looking out for themselves, for looking out for others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, at the very beginning of the chapter, let us esteem others better than ourselves. You know, when I was growing up, and it's still true to some extent today, but when I was growing up, there was a big drive. I mean, there were books published, there was articles written, taxpayer dollars spent, because we perceived there was a big problem we needed to address in our culture, and that was the problem of low self-esteem. Now, what begun originally as a fairly harmless attempt to ensure that each, for the most part, child, because that's what it is mostly geared towards, knew and understood their intrinsic self-worth. Which, by the way, by the way, I would just say, the best way for a child to understand their intrinsic value or worth is found at the cross of Calvary, period, the end. Because if God would rather die than live without you, how can you place a higher value on a human life than that? But there is this attempt within our society at times, somewhat maybe harmless initially, to ensure 
self-esteem, if you will, but it has gone out of control to where it's self-praise today. And the Bible, I believe, teaches very clearly that low self-esteem is not the problem, but more often than not, it is actually the solution. Not that we're supposed to hate ourselves, although the Bible says no man has ever hated himself. Did you know the Bible says that? No one has ever hated themselves. But the Bible knows nothing concerning any sort of need to elevate self. Jesus said, if you want to follow after me, he said, if a person wants to, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. He said, if you want to come after me, the key to coming after me, to following me, is to deny yourself, not to esteem yourself, to deny yourself. And, I would argue, esteem others as a result. So you look around today, you look around in this room. You look around at people you come across, as you go to the store today, or as you walk down the street, or you're going to get some food, or whatever, and every single person you see, God's word would say that you are to esteem them better than you are yourself. Now, your response can be like, okay, (laughs) I get it, like this is some kind of a spiritual lesson, we need to be humble, blah, blah, blah. You don't really think we should esteem others better than ourselves? Because not everybody, Pastor, Joe, not everybody's better than me, just telling you. In fact, I don't think very many people are better than me at all. In fact, I'm not sure anybody is better than me, you might think. But here's the truth. Here's the real truth. Everybody here in this room, everybody around you, is better than you at something and in some way. And it is our privilege to discover what that is. To get to know someone in Christ. And I believe that process will bring you great, great joy. To look into their lives and to see what God has done and is doing in and through them in their lives. And that will enable me to esteem them better than myself. Years ago, long before I was here, we had a men's retreat and there was a speaker that had flown out who was a part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, a man by the name of Ross Rhodes. And Ross Rhodes, his job with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association was to be the pastor to the staff that put on the crusade. So that's quite a role. I mean, he was basically Billy Graham's right-hand guy. I mean, he looks like Billy Graham, he talks like Billy Graham. Now, I had the privilege of picking him up at the airport and transporting him to the men's retreat. Oh, I was way stoked because I esteemed him better than myself, not because I was reading this verse and implementing my Bible, but because he was better than me. So I was excited to get to know this person. I was so thrilled to have that time with him. And I'm thinking, I'm going to pick him up at the airport. He's going to sit in my car and he's going to tell me ministry stories. He'll talk to me about Billy Graham, of course. He's going to give me tips and keys and all this inside wisdom that's not really in the Bible, you know, all the extra stuff that he's learned along the way. And he sits down in that chair next to me in that car, and he did not talk about himself one time the entire time, hour and a half drive. All he did was ask me about me the entire time. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, why are you interested in me when you're you? Because he was esteeming me better than himself. And you know what? I never met a man with more joy. So he was doing what we're doing practically 
And he's walking around with joy. So, key to joy, we close with this. Very simple. If you look at the book of Philippians, it lays it out for us. Chapter one, what's the key? He says, to live is Christ, Jesus. Chapter two, the focus is we need to be others-centered. It's only when he gets to chapter three that he begins to talk about himself. And then as he gets to the end of that, he says, I am all these things. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised there on the eighth day. But he says, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted a loss for Christ." Everything that he had accomplished, all of his accolades, everything you would put on a resume, he said, I count it all rubbish. So here's how it lays out. Ready? Chapter one, what's the key? Jesus, chapter two, others. Finally, in chapter three, he talks about himself. Jesus, others, yourself. Joy. In that order. Jesus, others, yourself. And you can't reverse that. Or you get Yash. And Yash is an acronym for nothing that I know of. Or you can go O-J-Y, O-J-Y. But it doesn't work at all. It needs to be Jesus, others, yourself. Joy, that's the key. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was that mind? Others-centeredness. And then the Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus did what? He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. I'm going to close with this. I give you a challenge this week, a dare, a double, triple, quadruple dog dare, okay? You go home, it could happen today, because this is something that happens to us on a regular basis, right? You go home, and you're having a bad day, and where you would otherwise be tempted to hole up somewhere and be discouraged and where I would feel sorry for myself or blame others or dwell on things that have happened to me, when that starts to happen, please try it. Just try it out. Prove me wrong if I'm wrong. Instead of being in that place and staying in that state feeling sorry for yourself, go serve somebody. Go bless somebody else. Focus on the Lord, Jesus first. Make it a priority to serve others. And God will bless you, J-O-Y, for doing that. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. The examples in your word, the things that you teach us. Lord, we know, you know, that none of this is easy or we wouldn't have to be encouraged and exhorted about it, read about it on a regular basis. So God, we ask just for your help with this and that you would bring this to mind middle of a week, Lord, or in a trying day, that we could implement this, and bring glory to your name. God, that we could develop this kind of mentality, so much at stake. God, so many people, we just don't know, we don't have nearly the eternal perspective that we need. There's so much at stake for us in terms of how many people we touch and impact. The opportunity that we have to esteem others better. And Lord, help us to do that. It is so contrary to my pride. It is so contrary to my pride, God. Help us to do that because we know it's going to get some people's attention and they're going to want to know what's different about us. They're going to want to know what you've done inside of us because something is working out of us that they don't see. It's uncommon.
But Lord, it, I, I still say it's hard sometimes. It's hard to trust you in this. Even though we know some examples of people who model this for us. Lord, help it to be a product of the work in you. You can supply us. I believe, Lord, you can supply us with the will and the power to work out this kind of thing in this world. But we need your help with it, Lord. We need your help. Lord, draw us into a time of prayer with you, of worship, of communion with you. That we would be reminded that you always know what's best for us in our lives so that we would be able to adopt this mentality. Lord, I pray for people here this morning that are in a marriage where they're married to an unbeliever and they have to adopt this mentality. God, help them. I pray for a youth or teenager that's having a hard time submitting to their parents. Lord, I pray for just a married couple, maybe Christians, but struggling to love and to respect within their marriage. Lord, I pray for workers that are working for someone that, Lord, frankly, they have a really hard time seeing how they could be better than them. And to esteem a person like that, that treats them the way that they do. God, you already know about it. But just help us with those kinds of things. Lord, a neighbor, a coach that's coaching my kids, it's driving me crazy. Whatever the case may be, we need your power, we need your strength, we need you working in us in order for that to come out of us. Lord, help us from the inside out to be changed today, to bring glory to your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name.